population of China in 1949, when the communists took control, was 540 million people. During these 72 years, the PRC has had five principal leaders. Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Yu Jintao, and since 2012, the current head of state, Xi Jinping. George Washington University professor David Shambaugh has written close to 30 books devoted to the subject of Asia. We talked with Professor Shambaugh about his newest book titled China's Leaders from Mao to Now. Professor David Shambaugh, your new book, China's Leaders from Mao to Now, was written for, this is like 30 books later, why now? <laughs> um, well, part of it was circumstantial, namely the COVID pandemic uh, and the hibernation that forced on all of us. Um, and so I retreated mainly to uh, my family uh, summer cabin in northern Michigan last year and uh, wrote most of it there. Um, but I wrote it over the course of six months, really. That's a circumstantial. But it had br- been brewing in my brain, you might say, for 30 years. I've been uh, researching, studying, teaching about uh, China's leaders over my entire uh, career. In fact, I guess that may be one thing that distinguishes me and my approach to Chinese pol- study of Chinese politics. I've always taken a kind of leader and national level uh, focus in, in my work, whereas some of my colleagues, you know, look at different uh, parts of the system. But leaders have always fascinated me, not just in China, but in fact in many systems. So this has been a kind of work in progress, as I say, for three decades. And finally, um, with the pandemic, I thought, okay, David, let's just sit down and, and get these thoughts on paper and, and get this out. You have my permission to correct me at any time when I mispronounce uh, this any of these Chinese names. So let's start with um, the first leader, 1949, in the communist uh, China, Mao Zedong. Um, I want to first ask you about the Little Red Book. When I was growing up, that was available almost in any bookstore. What impact did the Little Red Book have on his image? Well, Brian, uh, that uh, Little Red Book was produced in, oh gosh, hundreds of millions of copies, um, or at least tens of of millions uh, at a minimum, during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, It was published in the uh, spring, um, summer of 1967, and uh, that was in the first year of the Cultural Revolution. And uh, it was a, the little red book was a hand-held pocket size, you might say, literally, you could put it in your front pocket, um, collection of his quotations, mainly, um, not even his articles. And it was used by Chinese citizens uh, and the Red Guards um, and, you know, to study the chairman's thought, right? They were supposed to read it, recite it, study it together, repeat it. Um, And this was a very sycophantic, I think is the only word for it. Uh, Mind you, Mao had other uh, elements of sycophancy and, um, you know, personal adulation. Narcissism, I guess, is really... Uh, the, the term for it, before 1967. But at the height of the Cultural Revolution, the red, Little Red Book symbolized that, and there were these mass rallies in the middle of Tiananmen Square, for example, um, 
hundreds of thousands of young people called Red Guards who would sit there and wave their red books at the chairman as he was standing on top of Tiananmen Gate, and they would chant his name, and they would say, Mao Zedong, once way, once way, uh, Chairman Mao lived 10,000 years. So it was a, that was a kind of symbol of the Cultural Revolution um, that I think sticks uh, in many people's minds from, from the time. How many people was, in your opinion, he responsible for killing? Well, the best estimates um, that I've seen, if you add up the individual uh, campaigns, political campaigns they're called, um, they add up to somewhere, I I write in my book, uh, between 40 and 50 million, of which about 40 million, um, or around 40 million are the best estimates now, died in one campaign alone, the Great Leap Forward, which produced a massive... uh, 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 famine, mass famine. Uh, the Chinese uh, themselves put out the official figure of 30 million several years ago, about 20 years ago, actually, for the Great Leap Forward. But since then, further research has been done by other scholars who've gone into the archives um, in China, and they've upped that estimate to around 40 million, just for the Great Leap Forward. But then all the other campaigns, including the Cultural Revolution, um, which took about 100 million, oh, sorry, not 100 million, 100,000 lives. Um, and throughout the 1950s, the land reform campaign, the anti-counter-revolutionary campaign, the three antis and five antis campaign, the anti-rightist campaign. You know, the Maoist era was just replete with these political campaigns that attacked one or another uh, segment of the population. Peasants, workers, intellectuals, um, nobody really was spared. But um, indeed, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution were probably the most devastating. But it has to be said, if you compare Mao, you know, where does Mao stand in, in history in, in these uh, terrible terms? He comes out on top. Um, even, I mean, he's certainly in the company of Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot. But um, many more people, many millions more, died at Mao's hands than did Hitler or Stalin. And only two million Cambodians uh, died uh, at Pol Pot's hands. So, you know, Mao is one of the, indeed, tyrannical killers (laughs) of all time. That's the only word for it. Not only a a tyrannical dictator and and leader, but he actually was responsible for all those deaths. Because we have such overall short time, would you please give us some brief uh, definitions of three or four things you've already mentioned? First of all, what was the Long March? Uh, the Long March was a uh, year and a half long um, escape by the Chinese communists uh, when they escaped their mountain stronghold in eastern China in uh, 1934 and wound their way across southern, central, western China, finally winding up in the mountains of Yan'an in northwestern China the following year, being chased the entire way by the uh, Chiang Kai-shek Nationalist uh, Army. And so that was, a, um, that was literally an existential campaign. I think 100,000 uh, started off on the Long March, and only 8,000 actually uh, ended it. So, you know, that was a... Um, that's a event in Chinese communist history that uh, has achieved some um, kind of degree of, of mythology almost. 
How much of that march was Mao with them? The whole whole march. And it was during the long march, about um, a third of the way into it, um, where he became the uh, preeminent leader of the party. It was not the case when they uh, set off on it from Jiangxi province, but they got to Sichuan and they managed to have a congress there, and Mao was uh, appointed as the chairman of the party, and from then on he was really uh, seen to be the leader of the Chinese Communist movement. What was the great leap forward? What actually happened in those four or five years? Well, the great leap forward was uh, another one of Mao's ideological uh, campaigns launched in 1958, um, and it lasted uh, the campaign itself for two years through 1960, but the consequences of the campaign, namely the mass famine that it produced, stretched through 1962. So altogether it was a four-year um, national trauma. The idea <laughs> was uh, to uh, catch up with Great Britain in 15 years in industrial capability. That was Mao's claim. He said, we're going to telescope uh, modernization and, and the Industrial Revolution, and we're going to start smelting uh, steel and iron and uh, other metals in the countryside. Everybody's going to become an industrial worker. All peasants will now uh, have to start their own kilns and produce steel. And um, amongst other things, that means that they weren't tending the fields. And so grain was not being grown. Crops were not being grown. They also uh, were, were victims of very bad weather, um, those in 59-60, that contributed a great deal to the famine. And then uh, there was also false reporting of statistics. As far as the Mao knew, the, every year was a bumper harvest. Well, that's just concocted falsehoods by the cadres at lower levels. So the Great Leap was really you know, an unparalleled catastrophe in world history. So I say 40 million people perished in the course of about two and a half years. The dates I have on the Cultural Revolution, 1996 to 1976, what was that? Well, 1966. I, yes, I'm sorry, yes. Um, well, the Cultural Revolution was another one of Mao's ideological um, schemes. Uh, he felt, uh, first of all, that the youth of China, by 1966, the People's Republic had been around for 17 years, but the people, the kids who had been born since 1949 had not tasted, he felt, uh, revolution firsthand, and they hadn't uh, even experienced the countryside um, firsthand, those in, who lived in cities. And that was one motivation, um, to get the cre kind of create revolutionary red guards of the youth and then send them out to the countryside uh, to learn from the peasants. So that was one motivation. Second motivation was to attack the party, and the senior leaders of the party. Mao believed that uh, senior leaders were becoming, quote, revisionists. They were following Khrushchev and, and turning back on pure socialism and instituting proto-capitalist reforms. And so Mao really went after all of these, the senior comrades-in-arms and leaders that he had uh, served with his whole career. Many of them died. Many, you know, some committed suicide. Other, many others were imprisoned. So it was an extreme attack uh, by him on the leadership and on the party as an institution, Communist Party. And that all lasted about really three years. And by 1971, the military was ordered in to restore order. 
so in the next five years, the reason the Chinese say it ended in 1976 is because the country was under essentially military martial law until 76 when Mao died September um, 9th, 1976. And, the, and about a month later, um, his wife and three of her uh, political allies were arrested. This is the so-called Gang of Four. So they were arrested, put on public show trial, and imprisoned for the rest of their lives. So that's the ten. That's why the Chinese call this a ten-year movement. Because until the Gang of Four was was overthrown and, and arrested after Mao's death, uh, the Cultural Revolution uh, hadn't ended. Did you ever meet him? No, I never met Mao. I met Deng Xiaoping, and I've met um, Hu Jintao, and I've met Jiang Zemin, and I've uh, been in the same room with Xi Jinping. If you, from what you know, and by the way, how many times have you been to China? I've been there every year from 1979 to 2018. I've probably been there, well, I've lived there for over six years altogether, and I've been there, gosh, I don't know, well over 100 times. I heard you say in a speech, I don't know when it was, I don't remember the date, that uh, you alluded to the fact you might have a hard time getting back in there. Is that true? Uh, no. Um, I've never been denied a visa. Um, so, no, I've never had trouble uh, on that front. When was the, did you say the last time you were there was 2018? Yeah, 19, actually. October 2019, just uh, before the pandemic broke out. If you were, from what you know, if you were in a room with Mao, what would you see and what, how would you describe him? I was in a room with Mao. <laughs> well, Mao did not associate with many foreigners um, really throughout his career, but particularly in the last part of his career. You know, that's a hard one to imagine. I mean, Mao was a kind of an imperial emperor-like figure. He would sit in a big overstuffed chair you know, kind of speak in these philosophical aphorisms and wave his hands. And, um, you know, he wasn't one for for conversation, per se. And he was also very ill, it must be said, for, gosh, the last 15, 20 years of his life. He had several strokes. He had developed Parkinson's disease. He had some uh, sexually transmitted diseases, including syphilis that got to his brains. And, and you know, by the la for the last... Ten years of his life, really, um, he wasn't terribly copus mentis. So, you know, not many foreigners met with him. Who ran things for him? Um, well, mainly um, a man named Joe Enlai, who was the premier. And um, Joe Enlai is the only senior leader of China during the Mao period um, who was not purged by Mao. And he really kept the train on the tracks to the extent that the, that the government ran and the economy ran and foreign policy ran. It was Zhou Enlai's um, doing. Now, also one has to mention Deng Xiaoping, who, of course, succeeded Mao. Um, he kept the train on the tracks, and he worked very closely with, with Zhou Enlai. But uh, Deng ran afoul of Mao uh, several times, and Mao purged him um, uh, three times, actually, 1938, 1966, and 1975. Um, so he had a kind of ambivalent relationship, you might say, with Mao. But Zhou Enlai, I think, has to be credited. Most Chinese credit him with having uh, you know, kept China moving forward to the extent it did during the very tumultuous Maoist years. Check me on all these numbers, but Mao is in 
power for 27 years. He, you said it, September 9th, 1976 is when he died. Um, I've checked, and he's 5 feet 11 inches tall. And then the next man on your in your book, Deng Xiaoping, 5'2", if he's that tall, 12 years in power, uh, died uh, in 1997. Tell us about him. Well, Dung uh, generously, I think, would be uh, described as five feet two inches tall. I mean, most most think he was about four eleven or five feet. Um, so, physically small in stature, but um, a real a powerhouse of a leader. Uh, he uh, had a long career. I, I don't have time. We don't have time to go into it all. But I guess what distinguishes Dung uh, from Mao, above all, is his pragmatism and his belief in the party, the Communist Party, as an institution, and in government as an institution. Mao was almost an anarchist. He attacked and tried to destroy the government and the party. Deng, to the contrary, thought, sought to rule through the government and the party, and when he succeeded Mao after Mao's death, um, he had to rebuild um, you know, this fractured institution. So that's one noticeable thing. He was an institutionalist. Secondly, he was a pragmatist. Dung is famous for having said it doesn't matter if a cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. And he's the one who unleashed the pragmatic economic reforms of the late 70s that really have continued until the Xi Jinping period of, of present day. Um, but Dung is certainly credited with the economic reform and opening to the world, but I would say also social reforms and political reforms. So, um, you know, the takeoff of China as a superpower, um, which we see today, was started by really under Deng Xiaoping in 1978-79. How did he do it? Well, he had a genius, uh, I would say, to uh, discharge, you know, rule. That is to say that he he trusted uh, his um, other colleagues and he, uh, you know, delegated authority to other leaders, Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang in particular, but, but several others. So he didn't try and dominate uh, politics and, and rule as Mao did. Uh, so that was one thing, delegation, I would say. Secondly, he just understood the innate entrepreneurialness of the Chinese people. And his belief was to get the state off the people's back, kind of like Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan. He felt that, you know, Chinese are innately entrepreneurials and their DNA, whether they're peasants or urban um, citizens, urban. Uh, so he just, he removed a lot of the strictures on their lives. He, he dismantled, you might say, the totalitarian state that Mao had built. Um, and he let, let people pursue, uh, you know, in the countryside, their own private plots and growing uh, crops that they wanted, selling them on free markets in the city. Same story, allowed private enterprise. He began to dismantle the state-owned industrial system. Um, many, many reforms in many, many areas. So, you know, I would say that uh, he had a ge those two geniuses. He, he trusted the people, and he delegated authority to others. He was not all dominant. When were you around him, and what did you notice about him? Well, I was around him in 1979. Um, met him at three uh, receptions when he visited Washington, D.C. Uh, in January 79 to commemorate the normalization of diplomatic relations between the United States and China. So I didn't have any... Well, actually, I did exchange 
um, few sentences with him at, at one of those uh, receptions and shook hands with him at all three. But it wasn't like I was sitting around having a conversation with him one-on-one. These were somewhat formal occasions, and he was certainly in the United States uh, on a very formal uh, state visit. What was his personality like? What was, I mean, in other words, his individual characteristics compared to Mao. Oh, um, very different. I mean, he was very earthy, you might say. Um, he had no... Well, here, this is something he had in common with Mao. He had no real tolerance for small talk. Um, but he would uh, smoke <laughs> nonstop. He would spit. He had a spittoon at his feet at all times. Um, he, like Mao, was interested in geopolitics, I have to say, in kind of grand strategy issues. So uh, he would wax you know, on about international affairs. Um, but he was a really no-nonsense uh, kind of leader. He was not ideological, whereas Mao was highly ideological. You know, he did not speak in terms of Marxist uh, theory and Marxist uh, verbiage. Um, and he commanded a, and he was very short, as as you noted, four foot eleven, five feet. So when he sat in, in a chair, you know, his 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 feet would dangle, and not touch the floor, frequently. Um, he never wore Western suits. Um, he did travel abroad. Mao only left the country twice in his life. But Deng left at age 16 for the first time and went to work in France and study in France uh, for two years and, um, and then stopped in the Soviet Union on the way back. And he certainly traveled as a leader of China after 1978. So, you know, there there were significant differences between the two. Um, Mao... I'm I, sorry, Dung, I would say, was also um, one for results. He didn't want, uh, he wanted to see results for policies. He didn't have a lot of patience. And if things didn't produce uh, economically or whatever, he would pull the plug on, on a policy and move in a, in a different direction. But he was a pragmatist above all, and he would tinker with different policies and see how they did. The next leader you focus on is uh, Chiang Zemin. Uh, he spent 13 years in power. He was 5'9", if height matters. Tell us about him, and he's still alive at age 94. Yeah, um, so Chiang Zemin uh, found himself the leader of China quite by surprise, not just to him, but to everybody else, uh, in 1989, June, late June. He was elevated to Beijing from Shanghai, where he was the party secretary, um, and he was elevated in the in the aftermath, just in the wake of the Tiananmen massacre of June fourth, nineteen eighty nine. After, d- during which I should say, or just before which, uh, a man named Zhao Ziyang had been purged. So uh, Deng Xiaoping decided that they needed, you know, another younger leader. Deng by that point was um, in his early eighties, and. If anything, he wanted to retire, so they needed to have a younger leader. So they um, brought Zhang Zhang Zemin up from Shanghai. He was a kind of consensus candidate amongst the other leaders, but he wasn't particularly distinguished. He hadn't done much in his career um, to distinguish himself. He was what I call in the book a bureaucratic politician. He'd spent his whole career working in the industrial sector, uh, in China. He was a graduate in engineering. He'd been sent off to the Soviet Union, actually, in the early 50s, spent a couple of years in Moscow in the Stalin Automobile Works, 
uh, was very comfortable with Russians, spoke good Russian, sang Russian songs, liked to drink vodka. Um, so that was a part of his experience. But after he returned from the Soviet Union, he kind of worked his way for the next 20-plus years up through a series of industrial uh, ministries. And finally, just in the in the mid-'80s, he got assigned to Shanghai um, as, first of all, mayor and then the party secretary, and that's where he was elevated. He was born into an intellectual family. So unlike any of China's other leaders that I look at in this book, this man actually had an education, um, and, he, and that education was in uh, schools that used essentially an American curriculum in the 1940s, and he, had, he learned English at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he was, he's uh, musical, he loves to sing, but he can also play uh, the piano. And um, he grew up in a rather wealthy town in the lower Yangtze River Valley called Yang, uh, Yangzhou, um, west of Shanghai. So he, I would say this was the only one of China's leaders that was educated, really, and was an intellectual. Um, that certainly distinguished him from uh, Deng, who never went to college, Mao, never went to university. Hu Jintao, his successor, did go to university, um, but he's very much a kind of tech, technocrat. Um, so Jiang Zemin, um, you know, uh, when he was promoted in 1989, people didn't give him... You know, much chance to remain in power. He was seen to be a transitional figure uh, in the wake of the massacre and, you know, would maybe last one or two, three years at best, and they'd replace him with somebody else. Well, it turned out he stayed in power for 13 years um, and uh, actually developed a real uh, significant following and, and power base. And he didn't want to leave power, but they finally did uh, move him into retirement. Um, after that period, and Hu Jintao succeeded him. But I think looking back on that period of Jiang Zemin's rule, it's distinguished by two things. One is the economic boom that took that occurred after 1994, um, the results of which we still see to this day, but also political reforms, uh, kind of stealthy political reforms um, that were undertaken by, by him and a couple of his associates. So um, you know, China experimented with uh, civil society and, and opening the party, you know, and that, um, in retrospect, especially now, looking back from the Xi Jinping period, this was a rather open, progressive period under, under Jiang Zemin. Hu Jintao, he was leader of China for 10 years, uh, 2002 to 2012, right around there. Tell us about him. Well, he was um, selected by Deng Xiaoping, interestingly enough, um, before Deng died as the successor to Jiang Zemin. So Jiang Zemin did not choose his own successor and would not have chosen Hu Jintao. But the fact that Deng had made that choice um, constrained Jiang Zemin, and Hu Jintao uh, you know, then was in a successor and waiting for, for 10 years. Right, and then he became the leader for ten years. So, uh, I guess if you know most Chinese, when they look back on the on the ten years in which Hu Jintao was in power, um, they're not very impressed. Indeed, foreign observers similarly. When he stepped down 
in uh, 2012, the Chinese uh, lamented uh, the so-called 10 lost years. Um, I'm not sure. I think that may be a little harsh. Um, and I think it has that kind of characterization has a lot to do with the kind of persona that Hu Jintao displayed. You know, he was just, I mean, the adjectives that are used to describe him are words like wooden, <laughs> scripted, uh, unemotional. The man never smiled, um, hardly ever looked people in the eye, um, had no sense of humor. He was like a robot, he was like a party robot. I call him in my book a technocratic apparatchik. You know, he was, a, he was a creature of the party, of his training. Um, so, you know, he didn't really impress at, at a personal level, and I think a lot of people attribute his 10 years in power to this sort of uh, you know, nondescript persona. However, if you look, and I think history will um, reflect this, if you look back on his 10 years, Quite a lot was accomplished in the economic reform realm, in foreign policy, uh, even in, in internal political reform inside the party. Hu Jintao continued, uh, is the way to put it, he didn't start on his own, but he continued the reforms that Jiang Zemin uh, had initiated. And the two of them shared in common one aide, another senior leader named Zhong Qing Hong. I don't want to confuse your audience, but this is a very important man, Zhang Qing Hong. And uh, he was uh, brought to the top of the system by Jiang Zemin from Shanghai, and he stayed on and worked under Hu Jintao. And this was a very, I would argue, a, um, not only powerful, but fairly progressive individual politically. So, you know, if you look back on the 10 years of Hu Jintao's rule, the military modernized, the economy just continued to boom. China's uh, in, uh, companies began to go abroad, and they began to invest abroad, and political reforms continued in a kind of stealthy manner at home, and Chinese society enjoyed um, relative freedom. So I think with the passage of time, Hu Jintao's term may be judged to be more positive than, than it was when he stepped down uh, in 2012. As we talked earlier, uh Jiang Zemin is still alive at 94. Uh, Hu Jintao is 78 and alive. What do they do with former leaders? <laughs> I shouldn't say it that way. In China, how do they treat them? Um, well, if they hadn't been purged, uh, then they are, you know, given um, all the accoutrements that you would expect. Cars, drivers, bodyguards, nice home. Um you know, and they're allowed to travel around the country. Traveling abroad is generally not something that, uh, in fact, I can't think of a case where a former leader has been allowed to travel abroad. So they, but they are allowed to travel around the country domestically. And they live, um, in the case of, of Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, at least, a rather comfortable life. There are other leaders who've retired in recent years, too. Zhu Rongji, a man I just mentioned, Zhang Qinghong, others. Um, so physically, they live pretty comfortable lives, and they're, you might say, trotted out on important occasions, party congresses in particular, or National People's Congress. Now, the most important recent occasion was the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, the centenary, which occurred on July 1st, uh, this summer, 2021. And um, uh, Hu Jintao was there uh, next to... Xi Jinping at the top of Tiananmen Gate, 
Uh, Zhang Qinghong was there, and a number of other retired leaders were there, but Jiang Zemin was not. This is the first time, in fact, that Jiang Zemin has not uh, shown up for one of these uh, major public events. Now, in the last few he's shown up for, mind you, he's been in a wheelchair, there have been nurses holding him, he couldn't, wasn't, he couldn't really stand at the last uh, National People's Congress. So, obviously, he didn't show up this summer, that means his health is really... Uh, dissipating and, um, uh, you know, uh, he will uh, pass and go and meet Marx, as Deng Xiaoping used to say, um, one of these days. So that's the way that they're normally treated. The landmass in the United States and the landmass in China is almost exactly the same. You've been here all your life and also uh, spent six years, you say, in China. There are a billion more people in China today than there were when Mao Zedong became uh, the head of the party and the head of the country. What has this done to that country? And how do you compare the two land masses? Uh, and how far can they go compared to the size of this country? Well, that's an interesting question, Brian. Um, you know, when I first went to China in 1979 and lived there uh, throughout much of the 1980s, China was a very poor um impoverished and backward country. I mean, it ranked in the you know, lower 100 of, of countries' development in the world. Um, it was also, I would say, a very totalitarian society and very uh, uniform. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended, but people wore uniforms. Everybody wore blue or gray, matching uh, uniforms, men and women. Women did not wear skirts. They did not wear dresses. They did not perm their hair certainly no makeup. There was no personal expression. You know, this was a rather robotic society. Um, and it was economically very poor. Uh, if you wanted to buy any goods, you or even including food, you know, meats or grains, you were issued coupons by the state. Cotton, if you wanted to, you know, make a shirt or make a dress, you needed to get your um, cotton coupons and, and go and buy it. So this was a uh, an economy of scarcity, I guess is what I'm saying. And that was the case all the way th really through the late 80s um, when the economy really began to take off, and that's a 30-year-plus story. But you ask about the physical landmass. Um, so I've traveled all over China. I've been to 27 of the 32 provinces in my last four decades. Um, and I've uh, traveled all across the United States. I suspect there are probably three or four states I haven't been, but I just last week drove from Montana to Michigan. Um, you know, so I saw a fair amount of that, and I was impressed, first of all, with just, you know, as far as the eye could see, grain fields, wheat fields in the Dakotas and across Montana. The Chinese would give anything to have one province that had wheat fields as far as the eye could see. So they've always struggled with agriculture and uh, subsistence agriculture. So, but the major transformation physically of China um, has to do with uh, hard infrastructure, rails uh, in particular, including high-speed rail, highways. There's more, um, uh, you might say, interstate highway in China now than there is in the United States uh, in total kilometers. Uh, the you know physical building of cities deep in the interior of the country. You know we've all seen photographs of Shanghai and 
Guangzhou and Beijing, but you can go to these interior cities of China. They're far more developed than Minneapolis or, you know, many, many interior American cities. So the physical development of China is just really dramatic and really impressive. Um, and one is struck, struck by that, I guess, when you travel across the two. I, I don't know if my count is right, but we bet, I think we have 11 cities in the United States that have a million people or more. And my count is that at a minimum 50 uh, cities in China that have a million people or more. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it generally does. I mean, that's something else that one is certainly struck with. And you drive across <laughs> the United States, you, you don't see towns for hours, much less human beings. Whereas in China, um, with a few exceptions, um, you know, it's heavily populated, just people everywhere, you know, except in the Western, in Qinghai, Gansu, Xinjiang, those are rather remote provinces. But the population density uh, is just dramatic when you first get there if you're not accustomed to it. Um, and I guess you could say the same, the lack of population density in the United States, you know. Uh, so that's a striking, striking difference. But the overall, I mean, just the, the improvement in people's livelihoods and lifestyles, um, their housing, um, you know, their mobility, uh, what they can buy in the shops. I remember when I first went to China, I saw a huge crowd in front of a department store window. Couldn't figure out why they were all there, and I got close, and I found that it was a imported Japanese washing machine on display in the in the window. You know, nobody had washing machines. Nobody had private telephones. No, certainly no cars. Nobody had private automobiles. You didn't find many automobiles on the street, just bicycles. So this, in a quarter century, this uh, society has just radically transformed and modernized. And I don't think, you know, Americans or foreigners who haven't actually gone there um, can really appreciate that. And certainly if can't appreciate the changes over time. So, you know, it becomes a kind of abstraction uh, for for many Americans, I think. As you point out in the book, the current leader <clears throat> since 2012 is Xi Jinping. He's 68 years old. He's 5'11". But before we talk about him, I, I want to read you um, a paragraph from a column by uh, Sally Jenkins, <clears throat> a sports columnist for the Washington Post. She's nationally syndicated. And I suspect that Sally Jenkins, I don't know her well, I've interviewed her once, would not call herself a conservative. <clears throat> if you haven't seen this column, I just, I'll just i read the first paragraph. She wrote it the same day that we're talking. Uh, she says it was a forgivable mistake to award an Olympics to Beijing in 2008. It's unforgivable to hold one there now. If you want a world pocked by concentration camps in which Xi Jinping surveils your den, takes over Taiwan, and threatens a shooting war in Australia, then by all means send an American delegation to the 2022 Winter Games. Western democracies that participate will only be helping to promote finance, propagandize their own destruction, which, after all, is Xi's clearly stated aim with his talk of, quote, heads bashed bloody against a great wall of steel, unquote. Your reaction? 
Uh, no, I haven't read that particular column of Sally's, although I live in Washington myself and enjoy her, her writings on other sports top, topics. What she's referring to, just for your listeners, is the mass incarceration of a national minority group in China known as the Uyghurs. Um, Uyghurs are not Han Chinese. They're uh, Central Asian peoples, um, Turkic peoples, and they live uh, throughout Central Asia, many in Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and in northwestern China in the province. It's not a province. They call it an autonomous region <laughs> of Xinjiang. There's nothing autonomous about Xinjiang. It's under uh, very, very tight security control of the Chinese Communist State. And amongst other things that they, the Chinese Communist State has done is to build a series of prisons and labor camps over the, well, over the last decade. Um, the labor camps, in fact, go back several decades. That's where they, that's the gulag, the Chinese gulag. They would send prisoners to, for hard labor uh, ever since the communists came to power in 1949. So that's not a new story. These camps have sort of been retooled. But they've, been, they've built these really high-tech uh, prisons with, you know, 20-foot-high walls and, and watchtowers and barbed wire, and we don't know what the, what the life inside the walls is like because they don't allow visitors. Uh, but we do know that they have incarcerated over a million, somewhere between a million and 1.2 million Uyghurs, um, for, you know, re-education. <laughs> um, De-radicalization is what the Chinese government calls it. Why? Because these Uyghurs are Muslims, and, and that's part of the problem, but they also don't want to be part of the Chinese, of the People's Republic of China, right? They want to form their own state uh, in Turkestan, and they have, they, they have been a festering, you might say, insurgent movement uh, for some time now, for the last couple of decades at least. Um, and they use violent tactics, uh, as many insurgent movements do. They, they uh, have bombings, you know, and killings um, of Han Chinese. So they, they've uh, been guilty of what is clearly our terrorist tactics, okay? Um, and the Chinese communist regime has decided to deal extremely harshly with them, and they've locked them up in this mass incarceration. They've also instituted equally draconian policies to uh, sterilize Uyghur women, fit them with, uh, with IUDs um, and other, other um, pregnancy prevention devices. They monitor pregnancies. They force abortions. They're trying to reduce, quite literally, the Uyghur population. So this is what Sally Jenkins and many others uh, you know, including uh, other branches of the U.S. Uh, government, State Department, Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken has, has termed this genocide. And indeed, many other countries are looking at whether this does meet the definition of and threshold of genocide according to the uh, U.N. Genocide Convention. So back to the Olympics, what she is calling for, Sally Jenkins and many American senators and congresspeople, um, is a boycott. A, not just an American boycott, but indeed uh, a large-scale foreign boycott, not just of delegations, but of, of attending politicians and commercial endorsements. There are three types of boycott I would distinguish. The athletes themselves, 
the officials who go to the games, um, and then the corporate uh, endorsement community. So, um, so in the next six months prior to the Winter Games that are due to take place in, in uh, February, leaving COVID aside, there's this big question of, of these three categories. Um, so I think the U.S. government and others are more or less already decided not to send officials to the games. Um, they have uh, not pulled the plug on, on athletes, and they've not really been very clear, to my knowledge, on guidance for American companies, um, you know, who, of course, uh, you know, get major advertising from, from the Olympic Games, as we've just seen with the Summer Games. So I think that's what she's she's uh, writing about, and indeed it's going to increase. Uh, this issue is going to be uh, is going to increase in in the national conversation between now and then in in the United States, but also in Europe and other places. How much of this situation do you put at the feet of Xi Jinping? Uh, well, certainly the decision of uh, to build these prisons and the mass incarceration, <clears throat> I do put at the feet of Xi Jinping. And we can do that because of some leaked uh, classified Chinese documents that uh, the New York Times got their hands on and published about a year and a half ago. And they quote directly Xi Jinping's uh, statements about using extreme means uh, to deal with this problem. Uh, so this is, you know, the Chinese, first of all, they deny that any of this is happening. And then they have now said, oh, no, no, these are simply, this is de-radicalization. There's absolutely no genocide. They're very, very defensive, to put it mildly, about these accusations. Um, so this is going to come to a head uh, over the next few months. But, no, we have evidence, if you believe those documents that the New York Times published, of Xi Jinping's personal uh, role in creating these camps and these these prisons. What was your reaction in the early days of the Trump administration when she came to Mar-a-Lago? Uh, what does that say know, about him, like, by the way? Well, Xi Jinping, you know, wanted to uh, have, not just personally, but the Chinese government wanted to have some modicum of normalcy, normal interactions with the American government and the American president, right? It's in China's um, profound interest to keep some normalcy and stability in relations with the United States, the uh, superpower of the world. So, you know, they were, tr Trump was a complete uh, shock and surprise and big question mark to the Chinese when he was elected. They tried all kinds of ways to figure out what made that man tick and how could they get to him and who was advising him. And long story short, they figured out quickly it was Jared Kushner. So they worked through the Chinese ambassador in Washington and through Kushner to organize the um, visit to Mar-a-Lago. And it was a very uh, scripted, you ask me how do I feel about it? Well, I watched it, you know, it was a... Um, rather scripted, predictable meeting. Um, <laughs> didn't accomplish much. Um, it was a lot of pomp, you know, and circumstance for, for Trump. He, he tried to use it personally, um, but I don't think Trump ever really understood uh, what made she tick and what the issues in the relationship really were. So Mar-a-Lago was followed up, I should say, by a state visit by Trump to Beijing. 
uh, to the Forbidden City and, and to China, where the Chinese really rolled out the red carpet for him. So the Trump administration started off with these back-to-back high-level summit, you know, it's hard to call them a summit, high-level meetings, uh, and then it just deteriorated uh, from there. So what's he like, and what's the impact of his administration in China? Well, what is Xi's impact? It's total. I mean, if Xi Jinping has, I would say, uh, rolled back and dismantled much of the uh, many of the reforms that Deng Xiaoping initiated and that were continued under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. So in other words, um, the last 30 years of reforms that we talked about earlier, Brian, uh, she has put an end to and has reinstated a kind of neo-totalitarian state, I would argue, uh, in China. It's not as totalitarian as it was under Mao, um, but it has new features, you might say, including this mass surveillance system and the use of artificial intelligence um, to track the citizens of China. But there are a lot of similarities between Xi Jinping and Mao. Both, you know, have cults of personality. Both are sycophants. Both are all uh, powerful dictators um, who are issuing orders um, and expecting them to be implemented. Um, this the, neither well, Xi Jinping is certainly not one f- uh, to uh, tolerate any criticism of himself or his his policies. He's very draconian, um, and it's hard to believe he's been able to turn China back into that sort of controlled state in a matter of eight years. You know, here in the 21st century, that's something we associate with the previous century, but he has. So this is a you know this is a man also I would say. Uh, with a vision for his country and a sense of entitlement and destiny. You know, I've written in, in this book, you can, in the chapter about Xi, that there was really nothing in his previous uh, background in his childhood necessarily or, or his 30, almost 30 years working in the provinces to suggest he would become the kind of dictator he's become. Um, he was a rather, you know, he climbed the ladder, the communist ladder, and was he ticked all the right boxes. Um, but when he's got to the top, he's emerged now as this very forceful dic- dictatorial um, kind of leader. So, uh, you know, he's trying to use methods of uh, totalitarian methods, I would say, from a different era here in the 21st century. And so far, they're working. That's the amazing thing is that the Chinese population, you know, are not resisting. And we'll see how long that lasts. But this is a man who also believes that China's uh, t- time has come. He talks about the great rejuvenation of China. Um, you know, he really sees China in long historical terms. And here, this is on his watch, the country is finally reaching and attaining the kind of level of of importance and stature in the world that they've lost back in the 18th century and have now regained. So, you know, this is a man with a sense of mission, as I say, a sense of entitlement, a sense of power. Um, You know, so it's a kind of uh, confection of these forces that are coming together under his rule. And he's going to continue to rule indefinitely amongst the uh, reforms that he's undone from Deng Xiaoping is the retirement norm. 
you know, most leaders are supposed to rule 10 years and then time to go into retirement. Well, he's done away with that for the state presidency. And he's 68 years old, as you note. And we have to expect that barring health problem or a purge or coup, um, that he will be ruling China for the indefinite future. Here's where I'm confused. Uh, help me out here. Uh, there are three to 400,000 Chinese students in the United States. Why do, does China allow them to come here to see what our society is like when they run such a tight, uh, you know, I don't, I shouldn't call it repressive because I've never, I've been there, but I haven't been there in years. Uh, why are they allowing these students to come here? Well, for the same reason that they, Deng Xiaoping and his successors uh, sought to send Chinese students to the U.S. And, and to the West to learn the technology. They've been very utilitarian, you might say, or instrumental in their motivation for sending uh, students to the West. They don't send them to the West to learn about liberal society or liberal politics. They send them to the West to learn skills that can uh, then translate into, you know, the modernization of China and on the assumption that many will return to China. Uh, for many years, that wasn't the case. There were more stayed abroad than returned. But now that in the last six, seven years, that's flipped and the majority are now returning to China. So you're right, you know, for, for you and me, Brian, you know, it's hard to disaggregate those two. How can a Chinese student come to study particle physics and not notice you know, liberal society and, and political system and go back with a bit of both. Well, the Chinese um, have been very utilitarian for a very long time. To be sure, some of them do go back with an appreciation of, of liberal society, but they have to keep those thoughts to themselves. Um, but it's very, very instrumentalist, I would say. They want a skill set that will improve their country and their own personal livelihoods and, and careers. You talk about some of this in the book. Um, another thing that's perplexing is if you go to Walmart or Target or name your store and you walk around and look at the clothes, more often than not, they'll have a label made in China. Why would, and I assume the same thing is true in Europe and other parts of the world, why would they ever want to risk a war with the United States uh, based on the fact that we do so much trade with them and they win? Well, they don't want to risk a war with the United States. They're not seeking one. Um, there's only one issue, really, that would bring them into war with the United States, and that is Taiwan, the issue of Taiwan. And that is a uh, unique issue in the Chinese uh, mindset and the Chinese history. You know, and it doesn't matter how many goods you export to Walmart, it doesn't come anywhere close to the importance of regaining Taiwan and bringing it back into the sovereign fold of of the people's republic of china so i wouldn't say the chinese are looking for a conflict with the united states quite to the contrary i would say they're looking for a stable relationship with the united states um but you know they're taking actions in various places including inside their borders you know we've talked about xinjiang we haven't talked at all about tibet we haven't talked at all about hong kong um we haven't talked at all about the south china sea we haven't talked about the Sino-Indian border. You know, they've taken a lot of assertive, is the term I would use, steps. I wouldn't call them aggressive. I'd say assertive. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, are, which are disturbing not just the United States, but other countries in the region. So, you know, this is a, uh, a broader challenge 
uh, national security and geopolitical challenge to American interests in the region and to American alliances in the region. But the Chinese don't aren't looking for a conflict with the United States, in, in my view. That's not an, that's not a right reading of their motivations. They're looking uh, to return to greatness themselves. They're looking, and that includes returning to being the the predominant power in Asia, which they were for centuries, um, and to expanding their footprint on a global basis. Are they looking to export their system abroad? Not clear they are. Not yet, anyway. Um, Not like they were during the Maoist era when Mao was trying to do that. So I don't think the Chinese are looking for a fight with the United States. Um, in my my judgment. So uh, after all is said and done, is Xi Jinping and the people that are around him Marxist-Leninists? And what does that mean? Yeah, they're absolutely Marxist-Leninists, certainly Leninists. Um, What's the difference? Break that down. (laughs) Okay, well, you know, Marxism is... Uh, a body of thought, you know, that basically has to do with uh, the economy in a country and the ownership of the so-called means of production and the role of the state in the economy versus the role of the private sector and and the creation of a socialist society, the elimination of classes and so on. That's all classic Marxism. Um, uh, there are other elements, you know, of Marxist thought that um, that Xi Jinping, in fact, has has required uh, the cadres of the party to go back and study. So Marxism is the software, you might say, the kind of the operating ideology of a communist state. But the hardware is the is the Leninism. That's the party itself and the security services, internal security services, um, that penetrate and control the entire society. So. Uh, this is a highly Leninist state. You know, it, every corner of the society, every household, every citizen, you know, bumps up against the Leninist party state on a daily basis. Whether they, whenever they flick on the television, they're bumping up against the propaganda department of the Central Committee. When they open a newspaper, same story. Um, social media, same story. Um, and all kinds of things. So Leninism's all about physical control, intellectual control. It's kind of, as I say, it's sort of the hardware, whereas Marxism is a body of theory about producing ultimately a communist society. And, you know, there are only four communist states left on the planet, right? North Korea, Vietnam, China, and Cuba. Uh, some would include Laos. So, you know, this is not exactly a 21st century ideology. But uh, in China, they talk about socialism with Chinese characteristics. So they're trying to keep it alive. And, and Xi Jinping, as I say, has really spent a lot of a lot of verbiage, if not effort, to kind of re, um, reinstitute the study of Marxism throughout the party and the schools and in the country. Time's up. It's uh, There's so much more to talk about, as you mentioned. Um, the book is called China's Leaders, brand new, uh, subtitled From Mao to Now. And our guest has been George Washington University professor David Shambaugh. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Brian. Nice talking with you. Thanks for listening. 
please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 